Hello, and welcome to episode two of the new and uh, slightly improved Daily Zen podcast. My name is Charlie Ambler, uh, creator of the Daily Zen. Most of you probably are familiar with me through Twitter, but I know that based on the unexpectedly positive performance of the first episode of this podcast, I think a few people are discovering Daily Zen through iTunes, which is cool for me, not something I expected to happen. Um, so thanks for everyone who listened to the first one and provided me with some feedback. Uh, it helps me figure out how to do things a little bit better. Um, so I asked what topics do you want to hear about on the podcast this week on Twitter? Uh, the first topic suggested by Zach Webb was creativity, which is something that I focused on surprisingly little in essays and writings and stuff. I'm not really sure why I haven't focused on it very much other than um, I don't consider myself a particularly creative person, but I think I'm surrounded by a lot of people who um, inspire me creatively and who uh, I value in terms of their approach to creativity. I think that the relationship between creativity and mindfulness and the influence that meditation practice has on creative people is pretty well documented and it interests me as someone who doesn't produce uh, any sort of artwork per se but works with creative people on a regular basis in my day job and lives in a place where there are a lot of creative people. Um, I would suggest reading David Lynch's book um, Catching the Big Fish which is about the influence that his transcendental meditation practice has had on his filmmaking process. For people who don't know, David Lynch is a very esoteric, free associative, and creative filmmaker who um, his style, I think, is representative of the sorts of unique experiences that one can have creatively when you probe the depths of your, of your mind using meditation and other techniques. I think the main influence that mindfulness practice would have on creativity, and I've experienced this in my own way with my writing and business and things like that, is that it lowers your inhibitions without being intoxicating. So to be creative is sort of to release all self-judgment. The irony being that a lot of people approach creative activity with an intense sense of self-scrutiny because they're worried about an audience and they're worried about how something's going to be perceived. But the thing, the crucial thing that I think meditation sort of releases in the mind is this, this caring about how you're being perceived and how you're being judged and what other people think of your work. And oddly enough, this seems to be the thing that liberates a lot of people to produce the work that they need to produce in order to get to the essence of what their creative energy is. So, you know, I think it's, uh, I think Ira Glass has this whole bit about how when you first start doing anything, you're going to produce a bunch of crap and you just kind of have to do it and get it out there. And then after you've, after you've sort of excised yourself of all of this crap, you can start to reach the essence of what you're actually trying to say, but you can't really get to that point of clarity without having first experienced a lot of failure and confusion and uncertainty. And the important thing 
about that is that that only can come out when you're not focused on how someone else is going to perceive what you're doing. So, you know, meditation, when you, when you, when in meditation you learn how to not judge your own thoughts, you over time start to judge yourself less and you start to mold yourself less based on how you think others are going to perceive you and you start to care less about how others perceive you. And as a result, I think you find a certain freedom not only creatively, but in all facets of life, when you kind of stop being a prisoner to the opinions of other people and you can kind of just do what you want to do, not in a selfish way, just in sort of an expressive way. I think you see this sort of tangentially in creative people who aren't necessarily mindfulness practitioners, but maybe they have been weird their entire lives or they've been outcast or they have some sort of peculiar personality trait that kind of alienates them from other people. And a lifetime spent in that sort of uh, distance and alienation, which you see in a lot of famous musicians, artists, painters, writers, etc., often to their detriment in their personal lives, um, that sort of distance cultivates a, an irreverence towards public opinion or acceptable opinion, and it enables people to do things that are extraordinary, which is, you know, that's the definition is things that are not ordinary. And in the creative realm, that's really all that creativity consists of is figuring out ways to do things your own way that aren't, that haven't been done before, that are, that are new and that are representative of who you actually are. And so, you know, when we, when we practice in meditation each day, um, which I hope a lot of you do, you start to uncover more of who you actually are intuitively um, because you're looking within instead of piling all of these external ideas and external influences onto yourself. A lot of people, I think, acquire, acquire knowledge from the outside and start to think that that's who they are. And then once you look into yourself, you realize that you're who you are fundamentally and that can't be changed. And once you uncover enough of that and make peace with that, you can create things according to your own will and interact with people in a genuine way and follow a sort of intuitive moral compass that you don't have to question and just feel generally more comfortable with who you are, I think. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the relationship between artists and, you know, artists and their personal lives. And it seems like a lot of artists have often um, chaotic personal lives because they haven't really necessarily always found a way to balance the true self that they express creatively with who they actually are in real life. And a lot of people feel this need to put on airs or to pretend to be more crazy or more eccentric than they really are. Um, but you see with, with creative figures that meditate and that practice various spiritual traditions that they seem often to be more comfortable with themselves. I always think about David Lynch because I think he's a great example. He's never, he's, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't enter the public eye very often. He has a cult of personality because he's so mysterious. And his work speaks, speaks for itself, which I think is what every creative person can learn from a truly great artist, is that your personality is not... How others perceive your personality isn't important. It's just your ability to express yourself in a genuine way and be true to that creative vision is what's important. And I think the closer 
you can get to that vision through natural means like mindfulness and self-examination instead of, you know, drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, um, the better off a creative person is going to be in the long term because they'll learn to find healthy ways to express themselves um, and to deal with other people's reactions to their work, which can often be um, difficult to bear, whether positive or negative, precisely because in order to create the work, the person has to shed any sort of um, awareness of how others are going to perceive it. Um, okay, what do we have next? Numbing your feelings to cope with situations. That's a good segue. All of these always lead into each other pretty nicely, which I like. Um, I don't, I mean, there's, there's a way to approach situations neutrally without numbing your feelings. And I think that's precisely what we get at when we practice meditation and when we try to experience the world directly instead of through our own subjective lenses. There's no need to numb feelings if your feelings are natural and calm and appropriate to the situation at hand. So the best way to quote-unquote numb your feelings is to make, is, is to sort of, adjust your own perception of events to make it easier for you to handle them so your emotional response isn't so erratic or intense and as a result you can sort of understand that your the, the individual situations that you experience in your life are really not that big of a deal and to overreact to them only makes them more of a big deal in your mind and, you know, I like to think of how, how often a simple disagreement can turn into a huge fight because two people are too proud to admit that they're both wrong or they both don't understand something about one another. And instead of just making peace with that and accepting their differences, people get more and more turned up until they, they can't bear it anymore and they freak out or they, you know, say something terrible to one another. Um, that's not what we want, I think the practice of mindfulness isn't necessarily a numbing of your feelings. It's a awareness of them so that you don't escalate them unnecessarily. And that doesn't really, I mean, this question is worded interestingly. It doesn't really help you cope with situations. It helps you um, just deal with them more naturally. There's this human inclination to blow everything out of proportion because it, just because it's happening to you. You know, people don't get upset when they see a tragedy, horrific tragedy happen to someone across the globe, but they get really, really, really upset when someone cuts them off in traffic or disagrees with them or insults their personality. And, you know, even when terrible things do happen to us, we're not doing ourselves any favors by overreacting to them. Um, and we're also not doing ourselves any favors by not admitting to ourselves that we're in charge of our reactions. So, you know, if you, whenever anything happens to you, you can't control what happens, but you can control how you react to the situation. And there's no need to, to numb your reaction if you can learn to control your mind enough to react in a mindful and peaceful way. That was a quick one, but I thought I'd move on to something else. 
Um, okay. This is a good one. Um, passive aggression aimed at others and the self. Uh, I personally find passive aggression to be infuriating, and it's something that in a, when other people are utilizing it to get what they want, I have made it part of my mindfulness practice to learn to either ignore it or try to communicate with the person who's doing it to understand why better. Um, you know, I think the, there's a few different ways to react to something unpleasant that you find in other people, there's the, an aggressive way to just kind of confront them directly and say, Hey, I don't like this. Um, can we, can we figure it out? There's a passive way, which is to sort of just let it happen to you. Um, which I wouldn't advocate for. I don't think that that's a healthy thing. People think it's this pacifistic, peaceful way to be, but it's not peaceful to let other people, you know, step all over you. What's, what's most amicable and what's most natural is for someone to, you know, if, if someone is doing something that you're not a fan of, you know, you figure out a mature way to confront them about it and discuss it with them. And in initiating this peaceful communication about it, you can help that peaceful communication continue. The other person might not want to have a peaceful communication, but it's worth, you know, on your end, doing what you can to elicit some sort of um, amicable discussion about something. And so the problem with passive aggression being that people... It, it's done by someone who doesn't both doesn't want to confront someone directly about something. So in that sense, it's sort of cowardly. And it's also being aggressive in a way that sort of displaces responsibility from yourself to the other person. So in a way, it's really twice as harmful as either ignoring something or confronting someone overly aggressively about it. Um, when aimed at the self, I don't really understand how you could be passive-aggressive towards yourself. Um, I think there's a general sort of weakness that might come from thinking that you always have to be um, viewed positively by others, and this ties into the creativity thing I was talking about earlier as well. Uh, passive aggression is the behavior of someone who doesn't want to be viewed poorly by others, but also wants to treat others poorly in that particular situation. And for that reason, I think if we notice ourselves doing that, uh, no matter how upset we are with someone else, it's really important to step back and, and think about if it's worth it to be doubly um, manipulative and dishonest in a way. Because you're, you're being dishonest to yourself, pretending that you don't want to confront someone and you're being dishonest to someone else by, by forcing them to, to sort of, um, you know, implicitly figure out what's wrong by being, you know, um, I don't know, petty or bitter subtly. I don't think that's a healthy way to approach situations. Um, the best way to remedy that if you find yourself doing it or if you see someone who you love doing it to you, is to just try to remind yourself or that person to um, to step back and realize what they're doing and that it's always better to communicate things directly than it is to be passive-aggressive. It's also better to 
if something's bothering you, you give it a little while, maybe it'll stop bothering you. Uh, you know, if you, if you start to build a toxic relationship with someone using passive aggression over time, that's only going to create more problems and make problems worse. Whereas in the beginning, maybe the problem could just kind of fade away on its own. Um, on a similar note, if you find yourself constantly thinking that others are being passive aggressive towards you, it's possible that the problem is with you and not with them. Uh, I know a lot of people who always think that others are trying to, you know, trying to tell them something or manipulate them subtly through various signs and stuff, you know, and it's, it's usually not true. It's, it's almost like being a conspiracy theorist when you think that um, other people are always trying to pull one over on you without explicitly telling you. Um, and it's easy, it's easy when you care about people also to get caught in those logic traps of thinking that, um, that they're trying to, um, manipulate you or coerce you. I think that's common among people who are sensitive and overly insecure, but part of the practice is being kind to yourself and, and helping others learn how to be kind to yourself, not forcefully, but just through communication. I hope that was helpful. Okay, what next? Um, well, as an interlude, someone says, where do I find this podcast? Um, you can search Daily Zen on the iTunes store and it'll come up. Or you can go to SoundCloud. What is it? SoundCloud.com slash Charlie-Ambler, which is my name. And it'll come up. And they're both synced, so whenever I release something new on SoundCloud, it'll show up on the iTunes store. Um, and then when it, wherever else you can get podcasts that are synced to the iTunes store, you should be able to find it. It'll be easier to find as we keep getting more listens and it gets sorted higher in the, in the thing. There's only been one new episode so far, so it's going to take a little bit of time for it to get onto that, hopefully, top whatever list. Um, also, we had 19 suggestions um, for topics this week, so I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for participating in the conversation. Um, oh, this was one I wanted to talk about. Someone said, interested to hear who you admire in the public sphere. Um, and I thought about this one when I saw it, and I've thought about it all week. And it's funny because I think that I tend to, I tend to inherently distrust anyone who has ended up in the public sphere because I sort of know that they've done it as a result of their own desire. And oftentimes people, excluding certain artists and truly, truly talented people who are just sort of thrust into the public sphere because of their exceptionality, uh, I think there's <laughs> an inherent distrustworthiness that, that people who make themselves, put themselves at the, at the center stage often have. Um, and so as far as it goes with politicians or um, celebrities or people who are very obviously sort of fame brokers for themselves, I don't admire any of them, really. I don't admire even politicians who are, who, you know, they're all, everyone thinks they're trying to do good, but I often, I think that as soon as you're trying to get other people's attention or other people's admiration as your goal... Um, whether it's through acquiring votes or selling merchandise or selling music or whatever it is, I think you're inherently sort of losing, losing the path a little bit. Um, the people that I admire in the public sphere are usually people who end up there by accident. Um, in the world of business, I think 
there are a lot of really fascinating stories of people who were just sort of doing what they intuitively thought was right and, and good for them and for others, um, who just eventually found themselves, you know, this success story. Um, almost like that, that movie with Peter Sellers being there where people sort of, people are so creatively, um, naive in this, in this positive way that they eventually end up famous without realizing it or, or without trying to, um, and wildly successful. And they're usually people who, who started off being comfortable with not being successful or famous at all. Um, I recently listened to a podcast interview with the guy who started the, the burger restaurant five guys. And he struck me as someone who sort of just kind of was blissfully, um, unaware of his, of his social status and was just doing what he thought was good for his, him and his family. And, um, because he did it with care and with diligence, people responded really positively to it. And now he's like a gazillionaire and, you know, is very successful. Um, I think there are a lot of artists like that. Um, I always enjoyed Picasso as a, as a public figure and read a bunch of books about him and thought he was a real fascinating guy because he really didn't seek out the spotlight. He was just, all he did was work and he was extremely talented and uh, this world fame came to him because he, he really didn't care about how he was perceived. He just wanted to, to do what he was doing with his artwork. Um, in the visual arts, I studied, I studied art history in college. And I think in the visual arts, you see a lot of examples of people who almost to a point of insanity are so focused on their work, um, that they create these incredible, you know, world changing, um, aesthetic inventions. Uh, and the, the being a part, being a part of the public sphere just sort of comes to them. Uh, and there's no need for them to seek it out because if, if you're truly, if you're truly talented and you're truly, uh, aware of what you're doing and you work really hard, um, and you have the sort of inner, inner light that guides you towards what sort of new things the world needs, I think that the public sphere will come to you and it shouldn't be the goal of anyone's life. Um, and you see a lot of people who are only famous for the sake of being famous, and it doesn't seem like a particularly fulfilling or happy life. You know, I think uh, most normal people who you'd ask would say that if they were to become famous, they'd want to become famous for, for doing something good for the world, um, not for trying to become famous. So let me think of any other particular examples of people. Um, it's really hard to, cause it's like, I don't really care about people who are in the public sphere. I think it's, I think people who, who do their jobs day in and day out and raise their families and, um, you know, make, try to make a difference in their small communities and their small towns. I think people like that are much more admirable than people who are trying to speak to the, you know, on a world stage or a national stage. Um, because I sort of believe in the, the Zen tradition of you, you can only do what you can do, you know, today, right now in your own life. Um, and most of those activities are pretty unglamorous and boring and uninteresting, but they're the things that make up, you know, everyday life and they're important. And we should think, we should focus on those instead of focusing on these grand abstractions, um, like changing the world or getting famous or getting rich or whatever. So sort of a roundabout answer to your question, but, um, Let's see. 
<laughs> Someone just said rugs. I'm not quite sure what that means, but that made me laugh a little bit. Um, let's do one more, because we're at... Where are we? 24 minutes. Okay. Um, someone says, thoughts on moving meditation and flow states, using focused physical activity to quiet the mind. Uh, I'm not much of a yogi, because I'm not very flexible, um, and I don't know a lot about theories of, of moving meditation or flow states or anything like that, but I do have uh, a bunch of years of experience with exercise and weightlifting and they've sort of paralleled my practice of meditation and I think that um I I really can't go a day without exercising in some way lately I've been taking really long bike rides to quiet my mind and focus myself and keep my body active um and get outside also I think the the overlap between meditation and exercise is extremely obvious and important but in ways that we might not necessarily realize at first um Meditation helps you look within and examine yourself from the inside out and sort of shed layers of fake um, assumptions and, and ideologies and fantasies and delusions and all these things. And I think exercise helps you get to know, you know, where meditation helps you get to know your own mind, exercise helps you get to know your body. Um, I read some great quote by David Foster Wallace a while ago where he was saying something about how physical physical activity and fitness are is the process by which you you make peace with having a body. Um, it's something that we don't think about that much these days because we're so clued into our mental spaces and we're so focused on our sensory inputs through the screens and all of the technology that we use that the physical aspect of daily life is very easy to neglect if you want to. Um, and I don't think it's any coincidence that the rise of exercise trends and fads came about alongside the rise of the digital world because people realized that they were losing touch with their bodies and they had to get back in touch with them. Um, I find just as much of a meditative reward in a, in a slow, methodical, um, and strenuous workout that I do in actual meditation. I wouldn't suggest doing one instead of the other. Um, they complement each other extremely nicely. And I would highly suggest anyone who is skeptical towards athleticism or fitness because they see themselves as a, you know, a cultivator of the mind or spirit uh, to rethink that because, you know, in, in a lot of other great societies like the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans, um, physical fitness was considered a crucial element of spiritual fitness and philosophical fitness. Um, and you know, now we have all the scientific proof that the mind can't function properly without the body functioning properly. Um, and if you can train your body to be sharp and, and strong and um, agile, it can only help your mind and it'll help your, you know, how long you live your life and uh, how you feel on the day-to-day -day basis. Um, uh, implementing a, a solid exercise regimen into your daily life is a truly transformative thing, I think. And if you meditate alongside that, you can, um, while you're, while you're exercising, you use it as an opportunity to, you know, start to feel every different part of your body moving and experiencing your heart rate going up and down, experiencing changes in your breath and changes in your, um, I don't know, 
your blood pressure and the sweat and I don't know, to focus on every individual element of what occurs when you're uh, exercising is a really nice way to sort of get in touch with yourself better. So, all right, I've been trying to keep these short, so I kind of like to just touch on your questions, you know, provide some food for thought, and then um, you guys can now ask more questions, either based on those or just new things. And I, I consider this a sort of discussion because I don't really necessarily have answers. I just like to pontificate about these things and, and engage in this conversation with other people who are interested in these same things. So I'm always open to suggestions and criticisms, both, both positive and negative, and I hope that you will um, provide me with those if you feel so inclined. Thank you for listening and for contributing to the discussion if you did do so on Twitter. Um, just a reminder that you can follow on Twitter at twitter.com slash dailyzen. And uh, I'll probably do another one of these on Friday if I have time. Thanks for listening. Bye.